Amen. Grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Uh, If you're new with us, we just kicked off a series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, And so if you've got your Bible, make your way to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I have always had problems with my vision. I have been wearing uh, glasses or contacts since I was two and a half years old. And uh, if I'm not wearing glasses or contacts, my right eye goes rogue and goes lazy and crosses in towards the other one. And I've got uh, pretty bad astigmatism. And so if I'm not wearing some form of corrective lenses, uh, everything's foggy and doubled and out of place and just hard for me to see. Uh, but my parents tell the story of when I first got glasses when I was two and a half years old. They, they said they could tell that I was having problems with my vision and wasn't seeing things well. And so they took me to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor prescribed uh, bottle cap glasses for me. Uh, and when they said when I got those glasses and first put them on, my eyes just opened up real big and wide, and I was looking around everywhere. They could tell it was like the lights had finally come on, that everything had snapped in the focus, and, and I was just so happy that I was finally able to see. Uh, they, they said I just locked in and watched TV for like hours on end after that, uh, and it was like a whole new world had opened up to me, finally being able to see. Well, in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1 that we looked at last week, Paul laid out all the benefits and blessings of salvation, all that we have in Jesus because God has saved us in Jesus. Now, here in verse 15, uh, Paul is going to take a turn and he's going to begin praying for the Ephesian church and praying for us that we would truly know all that we have in Jesus, not just intellectually, Uh, but but that that knowledge would be something that we can experience, that we can have relationship with God. God, Paul's going to pray that the lights would come on in the eyes of our hearts so that God would become real to us. Because Paul knows that spiritually, all of us were like I was as a two-year-old, seeing things but, but not really seeing them, having vision that's blurry and misplaced and out of focus. And Paul wants us all to have the experience that I had of a whole new world being opened up to you, of everything snapping into focus, of having the lights come on so that you and I can finally see. And so let's look at this prayer together, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, uh, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Starting in verse 15, the word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. God, would you help us now as we come to your word? Would you 
do just what Paul prays for here. Would you enlighten the eyes of our heart? Would you give light and illumine the word that you inspired so that we could hear it and receive it and be transformed by it? God, thank you that your word is powerful, that it's living, and that it's active. God, would you cause it to do its work in our lives even now as we come to hear your word? God, would you speak? We, your servants, are listening. We want to hear from you, so speak to us now through your word. I pray that you would. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, just like last week, this passage is one long sentence in Greek. Paul's going to use some more periods as the book goes on. Uh, But one long sentence in Greek with one big thought that Paul is praying for. He's praying that we would know God better. Uh, But unlike last week, he he works this out in more of kind of stair steps than a three-point essay. And so it's as if he, he lets us know his main point, the main thrust of the prayer pretty early in the passage. He wants us to know God better. And then he's going to add a stair step onto that, and he's going to show us three ways we know that's happening, three ways we know we're coming to a deeper knowledge of God. And then he's going to add another stair step and give us three pictures and illustrations of the third of those ways, three pictures of that thing. And so uh, here's how we'll walk through this passage and try to follow his trail and these stair steps that he's laid out. In verses 15 through 18, Paul prays that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that he would enlighten the eyes of our heart. He's praying that we would know God better. And then in verses 18 and 19, he gives us three ways, three examples, how we know that that's happening, how we know we're growing in our knowledge of God. When we come to know the hope to which God has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then in verses 19 through 23, Paul is going to give us three pictures, three illustrations of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us, the resurrection, the ascension, and the gift. And so let's look first at this overarching theme of Paul's prayer for us here, that we would come to know God better. And the first thing we notice about Paul's prayer here is that it's not first and foremost for himself, it's for others. Paul's praying for the Ephesian church that this would take place in their lives. He says, it's it's been a few years since he's been to Ephesus, so he says because he's heard the report of their faith in Jesus and their love towards their brothers and sisters in the church, he continually thanks God as he prays for them, as he calls on God for them, he's continually giving thanks for them. And something I want you to notice right from the beginning of this passage, Paul really lays out the basics of what it means to follow Jesus here. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to have faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, and to have love towards your brothers and sisters here in the church. And one of the easiest ways to love your brothers and sisters here in the church is to do what Paul is doing here and to pray for them. Look, if you have committed to your brothers and sisters in membership, in partnership here at Veritas Church, you you have responsibility for them. You are called to help them journey to heaven. You are responsible for overseeing their discipleship and, and overseeing that they grow up into spiritual maturity. That is not just our job as the elders, as the pastors. In fact, Ephesians 4 is going to tell us that our job as the elders is to equip you to do the work of the ministry of caring for and discipling one another and building each other up into spiritual maturity. We teach and we try to create and nurture that culture of discipleship, but 
But ultimately, this is all of our responsibility as partners who have committed to one another here in the church to disciple each other, to help each other follow Jesus, and to build one another up into spiritual maturity. And what you're not going to be able to do is spend time with every other partner here in the church uh, this week or even this month or probably even this year. But you know what you can do? You can pray for them. This is the easiest first step into the responsibilities of what it means to be a member of the church. You can love your brothers and sisters by praying for them, by praying for the people you've covenanted with to help love and serve. And so I'll just ask you the question, do you pray for others here? Have you ever prayed for your brothers and sisters here in the church? By name. If you haven't, I want to encourage you, take this first step into the responsibilities of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it means to be a member of the church, to take responsibility for one another. And if you're thinking, well, I'd love to do that, I just don't really know what to pray and and what to pray for them for, well, Paul gives us the language and the content here. If you don't know what to pray for others, start here with this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. So often we overcomplicate prayer, but prayer is just talking to God, which sheds light on one of the struggles we have with it. So often we struggle with prayer uh, because we don't know what to pray for and we don't know what to say. Uh, I'm sure you've had the experience of being in a conversation with someone that you really just don't know all that well and you don't have a a bunch in common with, and so you make your way through the normal small talk uh, topics of conversation, and then uh, that conversation starts to die out, it starts to get a little bit strained, and both of you can sense it. Well, some of the reason we struggle like that in our relationship with God is because we don't really know Him. We don't really have anything in common with Him. Our hearts don't reflect His heart, and so when we go to pray, we go through the normal routine of asking Him to do a few things for us, and then we run out of things to pray for. We run out of things to say. And so how do you break out of that cycle? You get to know God through His Word. You let God's Word teach you and give you the language and content of what to pray for and how to pray for both yourself and for others. A lot of times we separate Bible reading and prayer like they're two separate things, but they're really not. They're like breathing in and breathing out. Bible reading is how we hear God talk to us, and prayer is how we talk back to God. And as we read our Bibles and we get to know God and see more of His heart and His character, over time we're able to talk back to Him. We're able to continue that conversation in prayer because we know what to pray for and what to say. And so as you read your Bible, turn what you read into prayer. Pray that God would bring about what you're reading, both bring it about in your life and in the lives of your fellow church members. And again, Paul gives us a really good start here in Ephesians 1. Look again at verses 17 and 18 at the theme of his prayer, what he's praying for for his brothers and sisters here in the Ephesian church. He says that he's praying that God, through his Holy Spirit, would give them wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that he would enlighten the eyes of their heart. He's praying that they would know God. And when Paul's talking about the knowledge of God, he is not just talking about knowing some facts about God. He's talking about knowing God in an experiential and relational way, growing in relational knowledge of God. And you can see that because he asked that that God would give them wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. 
You know, if you wanted to get to know our mayor, Mayor Mitch Colvin, uh, you could go home after church today and uh, you could Google some facts about him, you know, uh, where he grew up, when he was born, when he started as the mayor, what some of his hobbies and interests are, things like that. But after you were done with all of that, would you say, you know, I really got to know Mayor Mitch this afternoon? Probably not, because you didn't, right? To actually get to know him, you have to talk with him and spend time with him. And that's what Paul's praying for here, that we would grow in our knowledge of God in a way where we actually get to know him, not just learning more intellectually about God which can explain why God feels distant to some of us. If you read your Bible like a Google search to get some new facts or information about God or or doctrines, you're not going to grow in your knowledge of Him. Facts can be a start, but ultimately Bible reading is not about learning new facts. It's about communing with God, spending time with God as He reveals Himself to us through His Word. And if you don't pray there's a really good chance you're reading your Bible and relating to God like a Google search instead of a relationship, that, that it's become strictly intellectual with, for you, that you're looking to the Bible for advice and for life tips rather than relationship with God, and that's going to dry you out, and it's going to dry you out quickly. Instead, Paul is praying that God would enlighten the eyes of our heart and that he would give us knowledge of him. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not just talking about your emotions and your feelings. Uh, In the Bible, the heart is the center. It's the control center where everything else in your life flows out of. It's the seat of your will, your love, your desires, your behaviors, your actions. Everything flows out of the heart because everything flows out of what we love, what we think is going to give us the good life, what we think is going to make us happy. Whatever your heart says that that is and whatever your heart has been captured by, it puts your hands to work to go and get more of that thing. It it turns your thoughts towards it. And so the heart is the center of everything. And Paul is praying that God would turn the lights on there and that that would change everything about our lives, that it would change the way the things we love. It would change what we desire. It would change our thoughts. It would change our behaviors. It would change our actions. Really what Paul is praying for is a deeper knowledge of God that comes through a deeper grasp of the gospel, a heart grasp of the gospel. These three ways we know this is happening that Paul's about to describe are really just three different angles of the gospel. You come to know God relationally through the gospel. And so what does it look like for us to be growing in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened? Well, Paul says three things. First, the first one we see in verse 18, that we would come to know the hope to which he has called us. Now, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not using it in the way that we do, because when we use the word hope, we're talking about something that we wish would happen, but, but ultimately we don't know if it's going to happen, and it's out of our control whether or not it happens. We might say, I hope that the weather cools off, but we don't know if it's going to cool off, and ultimately we don't control when the weather chooses to cool off. You might say, I hope my job gets less stressful, but, but ultimately you don't know if it's going to get less stressful, and you can't control whether or not it gets less stressful. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's still talking about things that are out of our control, but is not talking about things that are outside of God's control. And it's not talking about things that might happen It's talking about certainties. 
The hope to which God has called us is all the blessings of salvation that we looked at last week in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul is praying that the blessings of being united to Jesus and knowing that God has covered you from eternity past to eternity future, that this hope of salvation is a certainty, Paul is praying that the the realities of being chosen and predestined and adopted and indwelt and forgiven and redeemed and sealed with the Holy Spirit and given the Spirit as a guarantee that all of this would shape the way and transform the way that you live and the way you see yourself. And, And look, Paul is praying for this because it is not enough to just think about it and theologize about it. You can have the doctrines and the truths But until the truths and the doctrines have you, they're not going to light up your heart. And God has to do that work. And so we should ask for it, for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters here in the church. You want another simple thing to pray for others? Just read back through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and pray for each blessing of salvation. Pray that God would make it real uh, in the hearts of your brothers and sisters, that he would lead him to praise him for his glorious grace. So Paul prays we would know the hope to which God has called us. The second thing he prays for in verse 18 is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this is one of those places in the Bible that if you read over it too fast and you skim over it too quickly, you'll miss what God is trying to say here and it won't have the effect on you that it should. Because I'd imagine that most of us, when we read through the passage, at first glance, we thought that Paul is talking about what he mentioned earlier in chapter 1. Paul's talking about our inheritance that's waiting on us when we die. But that's not what Paul said here, is it? Like, don't look at me. Look at the passage. What did Paul say here? He did not say the riches of our glorious inheritance. He said the riches of his glorious inheritance. God's glorious inheritance, not ours. Now, do you realize what that means? That means that the riches of God's inheritance, the inheritance that God cannot wait to cash in on at the end of days, the inheritance that God is looking forward to, it's his people. It's you and me. It's his saints. We are God's inheritance that that he can't wait to get a hold of. Us being with him is what God is looking forward to and can't wait to cash in on. That's incredible. I mean, it would be blasphemous if God did not say it. What Paul is praying for here is that we would come to know just how much God loves and values us. Did you know that in Zechariah 2, God says that we, his people, are the apple of his eye? In Zephaniah 3, he says he rejoices over us with gladness and he exults over us with loud singing. And Paul is praying for this because we need grace to believe this. We need grace to believe we are actually this loved by God. I mean, many of us spend our days thinking that God's heart towards us is one of disappointment and frustration, that that his posture towards us is he's a little bit jaded towards us and he's a little bit cynical and he keeps us at arm's length because we can't get our act together and we can't figure things out. But the good news of the gospel is not that because of Jesus, God now puts up with us The good news of the gospel is that God has dearly loved us and and he has made a way through Jesus for us to be his inheritance and for him to be our inheritance. 
Paul is praying that we would believe the gospel, that in spite of all the lies coming our way, that we would believe we really are this loved and valued by God, that we would believe that we, the church, are actually God's inheritance. The third thing that Paul says, the way we know uh, we're growing in our knowledge of God, the third thing he prays for in verse 19 is that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. All greatness has a limit we can measure, right? Michael Jordan could dunk a basketball from the free throw line, but he can't fly. And movies are limited. The best movies are limited by the technology that's available at the time and the capabilities of the actors and the actresses. The best music is limited by the capabilities and the talents of the musician. The the best marathoners and sprinters can only run so far for so long, and we can time it. We can measure it. We can put limits on it and say, as a species, we can go this far and no further. All greatness has a limit on it, except when we're talking about God. His power is immeasurably great. You can't measure it. It's off the charts. You can't even put a chart to it for His power to be off of. There are no limits to the greatness of God's power. And did you notice where Paul says that power is directed? Again, look at the text. Where does it say? It's towards us. Towards us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is turned in love towards us, towards the church. It's working on our behalf. It is available to us. And Paul gives us three pictures, three illustrations of the immeasurable greatness of God's power to help us believe this and walk in this. Uh, The first one that he gives, the first picture in verse 20, is the resurrection. Now, don't skirt over this just because it's familiar. Because Jesus was not pretty dead. He was not mostly dead. He was not almost dead. He was completely and totally dead. And then he wasn't again. Blood that had stopped flowing and congealed started flowing again. A heart that had stopped beating started beating again, and God brought him back to life from the dead. That's power, and that's good news because this resurrection power, Paul is saying, is available to us. It's a sign of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. Romans 6 says that when God saves us, he unites us with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, that our old self and our sinful nature was buried with him in his death, And when Jesus rose from the dead, we were raised with him to walk in newness of life. Just like Paul's saying here in Ephesians 1, the the greatness of God's resurrection power is available to us because God has raised us from the dead spiritually. We share in, we participate in the power of Jesus' resurrection. And listen, if resurrection power is what's available to us, Do you realize that means there's nothing in your life that's beyond hope? If resurrection power is what's available to us, there's nowhere in your life where you can say, that'll never change. If resurrection power is what's available to us, there is no sin you struggle with that can't be overcome through the power of the cross And the resurrection, it means there is nothing in our lives that lies outside of the reach of God's power. If God brought life from the dead once, 
then he can do it again in our own lives. He can make us completely new. He can overcome sinful habits and fears and mindsets that have captured our heart for years. He can do that work because there is no sin greater than the power that God displayed at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection power is available to us if we will believe it and we will ask for it. Look at the second picture of power that Paul gives in verse 20, uh, the, the ascension. In verse 20, he says, After raising Christ from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is now a man that sits on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. Jesus has been appointed and installed as the king over all things, and he is ruling and reigning right now. Now, this should give us confidence in God's power towards us. God raised Christ from the dead and then subjected the entire world to him. And so do you really think that he can't handle your issue, that it's too big for him? No, there's nothing that's too big for him. There's nothing more powerful than him. There's nothing outside of his control. So God raised Christ from the dead. He seated him. And look at the third uh, picture of power that Paul gives us here in the passage, the gift. Verse 22 says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church. You, You can answer. It's okay. You can talk. He gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus being appointed head and ruler over all things, it's not just a raw display of God's power, it is a gift of God to the church. Ephesians 5 is going to tell us that we, the church, are the bride of Jesus. We are married to Jesus. And it's as if Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1 that that Jesus being the ruler and reigning over all things is God the Father's wedding gift to the church. All the power that Jesus has, he has it on our behalf for our good, for the benefit of the church. His immeasurably great power is turned in love to be exercised on our behalf for our good. And look at what Paul says about the church in verse 23. It says the church is Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As God, Jesus is omnipresent. That means he's present at all times, in all places, and in all spaces. But what the Bible shows us is that we, there's a sense in which we can say that there are places where Jesus is especially present or graciously and relationally present to save and to do good to and to be with and fellowship with his people. In the Old Testament, God put his gracious relational presence in the tabernacle and the temple. He lived among his people so that they could have a relationship with him. And Paul is saying now, in Jesus, the place where Jesus has put his gracious presence is the church, so that we now become the temple. We become the place that Jesus lives on the earth. And so this is what we have as a church The risen Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things, and he's exercising that power on our behalf as a church, and he lives in us as the church. We have his presence in us like the temple, and his resurrection power is available to us, to all who will believe. 
But I know immediately when I say that, many of you are thinking, okay, well, if that's true, if resurrection power is what's available to us, why don't I see that working in my own life? Why am I not experiencing that? Why don't I see, get any taste of Jesus' resurrection power at work in my own life? Well, it could be a few things. One, it could be that you are cherishing blatant sin and disobedience and just refusing to repent of it. Uh, maybe you become lazy towards the things of God, lazy towards a relationship with God, and you have this open sin in your life that you know, I'm disobeying God, I'm rebelling against Him, but you just refuse to repent of it. Well, God's not going to bless that blatant disobedience and rebellion with resurrection power. So if that's you, you need to repent and believe. You need to come back to Jesus. Two, it could be that you think you're not experiencing resurrection power when you actually are because you're overlooking the normal Christian life. You're overlooking the things in your life that, that feel and seem normal to you that absolutely are not normal. I want to spend some time here because I need you to see this. Because, for example, every time you say no to a sin that you have been struggling with for years, that's resurrection power at work in your life. You didn't do that on your own. God did that in you. Every time you show grace to your spouse or have patience with your children, like, you did not do that on your own. God brought that about in your life. Every time you give into a sin, and instead of running away from God to wallow in guilt and shame or to try to clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable to Him, you instead run to God, confident that because of the work of Jesus, you're still loved, you're still acceptable, and God is going to cleanse you and forgive you. That's resurrection power at work in your life. That's not normal. What's normal is for us to think, I've got to earn it and I've got to clean myself up. Every day that you faithfully go to work and you work hard for the Lord and not for men, resurrection power is breaking out in your life. Every time you refuse to give in to gossip or slander, that's resurrection power. Every time you are tempted to covet or be greedy or to be jealous and you don't give in to that temptation, that's resurrection power at work in your life. Every time you share the gospel with a friend or a neighbor, even when you're afraid, the power of new creation is breaking out in your life. Every time you serve someone when you would rather be served, every time you forgive instead of uh, hold a grudge or be bitter or try to retaliate or seek vengeance, resurrection power is at work in your life. Every time you are tempted towards anxiety or insecurity and instead of wallowing in it, you preach the gospel to yourself and you believe the gospel more than the lies of the enemy, you guessed it, resurrection power is at work in your life. Do not overlook the normal Christian life. What seems small is not small. Jesus is about the work of making you completely new. He is putting his resurrection power to work in your life. And then third, it could be that you're not experiencing resurrection power because you're not asking for it. I mean, let's just be honest with each other in here this morning. The way Paul's praying here in Ephesians 1 is not the way that most of us pray. Most of us, if we pray, we pray that God would make our life go well and that he would do the things that we want him to do for us. 
We, we do not pray. The, the main theme of our prayers is not to know God and His gospel better. And we are very rarely praying for others. We're usually just praying for ourselves. Now, listen, none of that is wrong in and of itself. It's just way out of order. And getting your prayers in the right order, making the main theme of your prayers to, to know God and to know His gospel better and praying that for yourself and for others, that's actually going to help you with the things that you usually spend your time praying for. Like, Paul is going to get to the practicalities of what it means to follow Jesus as a church member and as an employee and as a boss and as a parent and as a child and as a husband and as a wife. But before he does that, he wants you to start here, asking God to know him better, to have a deeper heart grasp of the gospel, to turn on the lights in your heart so that you can see. Because a deeper grasp of the gospel and a deeper relational knowledge of God will transform you as a parent and as a church member and as a friend and as a spouse, as a child, more than anything else can. If you feel like, for example, if you feel like and you're stuck at home wasting your life and wasting your gifts, raising kids, a deeper knowledge of God and a deeper belief in the gospel helps you to know, no, you're not wasting your life. You have an eternal hope to which God has called you, and you're playing an indispensable role in God's story and God's plan of summing up all things in Jesus. You're an essential character in the story. As you point your children to Jesus, you're going about the work of God summing up all things in Jesus. If you feel trapped in a pattern of habitual sin that you've struggled with without a lot of victory for years, a deeper knowledge of God and a deeper grasp of the gospel helps you to know that you have been chosen and predestined for what? Look up at verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 1. What does he say we've been chosen and predestined for? That we should be holy and blameless before God. And God is going to do that work. God will complete the work He started in you. He will finish that good work, and you will experience freedom, complete freedom from the power and presence of that sin, whether it's in this life or in the next. If you're struggling with relational conflict with a friend or with a spouse, a deeper knowledge of God and the gospel helps you to know and believe that you can, at the very least, own your side and own up to the ways you've sinned and done wrong in this relationship. And it can give you the grace and the power to be able to forgive because the gospel tells you that you have done much worse to God than what this person has done to you and God freely forgave you of it. And so in turn, you should be able to freely forgive this person as well. It's difficult for us to believe it but most of our practical problems are spiritual problems at their root. They flow out of a lack of belief in God, a lack of trust in God, and, and not enough heart grasp of the transforming power of the gospel. Uh, Kent Hughes tells the story of what happened in Itasca, Texas. I looked up the pronunciation, Itasca, Texas, uh, before and after World War II. And so right before World War II, there was a fire that broke out at the school in town, and it took the lives of 263 students in the town. And it was a small town, and so almost everybody in the town was either directly affected, lost somebody in the fire, or knew a family who lost someone in the fire. And so this was just a massive event uh, in this community, unfortunately. 
But, but after World War II, uh, they went to rebuild the school. And as part of that rebuilding project, they built a, a state-of-the-art sprinkler system, what was known as and called at the time the finest sprinkler system in the world. And they were really proud of it. I mean, they, they gave tours of the school to show off this new sprinkler system. They uh, did all sorts of things like this. I mean, it was a big deal for them. And so they finish building the school. They bring students into the school. And as the years after the war go on, the town continues to grow. And so seven years after they rebuilt the school, they have to build onto the school to accommodate more students. And so they go to add a new wing onto the school. And when they open things up to go add onto a new wing of the school, they discover that the state-of-the-art sprinkler system, uh, the finest sprinkler system in the world, had never actually been connected. Like, they forgot to hook it up. It had been useless the entire time. Now, that's wild, right? Like, that's a crazy story. But it's a really good picture of us when we don't pray. Because we have all the power in the world available to us, but as long as we don't pray, we remain unconnected to it. You cannot just think your way or study your way into relationship with God. You've got to pray your way into a deeper knowledge of God and the gospel because God is not a math equation. God is personal. Paul's not praying for stuff here. He's praying for a deeper relationship with God. Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, not so that you could learn some facts about him, but so that you could know God. And prayer is how you know him. It's how you live out your identity as a child of God as you call on God as your Father. God wants to give this to us, a deeper knowledge of God and a deeper transforming heart grasp of the gospel is available to us if we will believe God for it and we will ask God for it. God wants to give it to us. He wants to give it to the church. And so would you ask for this? Would you ask for this for yourself? Would you ask for this for your brothers and sisters here in the church? Let's go to the Lord and do that now. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the depth of the just incredible promises here in your word. God, thank you that you desire relationship with us, that you want us to have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. So would you help us? Would you help us to take responsibility for one another by praying for each other? Would you help us to pray, ultimately, not to get things, but to get you, to get more of you and to know you and to walk with you, to enjoy the benefits and blessings of salvation that you've opened up to us, you've reconciled us back to yourself. God, would you open the eyes of our heart to know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. God, please give us grace to believe it. Please give us grace to walk in it. Please give us grace to make the main theme of our lives, knowing you and walking with you. How would you do it even now as we respond to your word? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.